you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Myths.org and Neapolis Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. What is up, everybody, and welcome to episode 124 of the Lone Gunman Podcast. This is Rob Clark. We've got a great show lined up for you today, and we're going to tear apart the myth that the second floor lunchroom encounter happened the way they told us, or even if it happened at all. Because my guest today has compiled a ton of a ton of evidence to the contrary using documents eyewitness testimony video and photo evidence from the day when you actually put it all together it actually tells a very very different narrative of events and we're going to walk you through that step by step today piece by piece and show you exactly how they did it because the problem is you know, if you if you don't have Oswald 
closer to the sixth floor than you did, than what everybody else was saying, where he was seen last, what he actually said himself, then they would have had even more of a problem putting Oswald on the sixth floor. So we're gonna we're gonna break it all down for you today and uh, show you exactly how you frame a patsy. Okay. Um, exciting, exciting news as well. Uh, the Lone Gunman Podcast and the Dallas Action have got a fantastic T-shirt store for you. If you'd like to support the show and get something in return, you can now buy official Lone Gunman podcast and the Dallas Action t-shirts, hoodies, uh, long sleeves, kids, uh, girl style tees, um, and they're, they're great. They look great. They, they feel great. And there's almost 30 designs to choose from that I've worked my butt off uh, designing just for you. So I'm going to put links um, up on tlgpodcast.com where you can get to the t-shirt store. Uh, if you follow me on Facebook, you've already seen this stuff. Or Twitter, you've already seen this stuff. Um, they're really, really cool designs. Something totally different. You know, if you're planning on going to Dallas or, or to any of the conferences this year, you got to get one of these shirts. I mean, you're going to be the talk of the conference with these shirts. You know, everybody's going to be like, oh my God, where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? You know, we got Oswald uh, shirts, uh, not just, you know, it, it, it's it's things that are our podcast centric, you know, things that Doug talks about, things that I talk about, you know, you can go get a Larry Crayford t-shirt, okay, you can go get a Lauren Hall or Lawrence Howard Dallas Action shirt, okay, you know, some cool stuff, really, really cool stuff, so make sure you check that out if you'd like to support the show, it's a great way to do it, and be damn stylish about it, okay. All right, let's see. So this month, the featured podcast for the Dark Mist Collective is called Inward Empire. And I want you to have take a little listen. It's about a minute long. Check it out. Um, if you haven't yet, it's a really great show. Here is a little trailer for the Inward Empire. Greetings, listeners. I'm Sam Davis, the host of Inward Empire a podcast that explores the role of ideas, ideology, and myth in American history. Each episode plunges you eye-deep into a world that's both intensely familiar and profoundly different from the one we live in now. From the forests of colonial New England, to the scarred mental battlefields of Civil War veterans, to the contested streets of Gilded Age cities, I aim to bring the American past alive for my listeners and at the same time, illuminate the American present. For more information about the show, visit darkmyths.org or my own website at inwardempirepodcast.wordpress.com. And there you have it. Make sure you check it out, Sam's show. It's really, really cool, all about American history. He takes you right there and throws you into the middle of it. So check it out. And this week, the show sounds a little better. I know it was a little rough last week. Uh, I, I was having headphone issues. That was the problem. Uh, I got new headphones. So this week, talking to Bart sounds much, much better. 
Uh, thank you for the people who support the show. John, John, Brendan, you guys are awesome. And you make it possible for me to try to sound halfway decent. Once again, thanks, guys. And, and folks, make sure you're checking out covertbookreport.com. You can get there from tlgpodcast.com. It's a dedicated button along the right-hand side of the webpage uh, for, for great articles and, and in-depth news analysis. That's covertbookreport.com. And without further ado, folks, I bring to you Mr. Bart Camp. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is the Lone Gummin Podcast, and I'm your host, Rob Clark. And with me today, returning for a third time, is my friend Bart Camp from Dealey Plaza UK and the Reopen Kennedy Case Forum and the proprietor of prayer-man.com, here today to talk about his article, Anatomy of the Second Floor Lunchroom Encounter. Mr. Bart Camp returns. How are you doing, Bart? I'm doing very well, thank you very much. And thanks to all the listeners for their interest in my previous stuff, and hopefully also in my current article. As you already said, it's called Anatomy of a Second Floor Lunchroom Encounter. We refer to it... Uh, to something different, and uh, since uh, I try not to swear, I will uh, keep it. Uh, I will, we, we refer, actually we refer to it as the second floor lunchroom cluster F. So yes, make up the rest. <laughs> yes, and it's a uh, it gets pre- that's a pretty accurate statement when you start getting into you know the various affidavits, the various testimony, the various interviews, and various eyewitnesses and. Yeah, and we're going to yeah. get into all that today. And but Bart, start us off with the official, so-called official version of events. I guess you'd call it. Yeah, right. Well, the official version is uh, according to the Warren report. Uh, I'm just I'm not going to read the whole thing out. It's in the actual article. Um, but in a nutshell, basically, they say that Oswald. Descended from this after shooting Kennedy, descended from this through the stairs from the northwest corner of the Texas School Book Repository building and made his way down and then basically crossed the landing of the second floor and went into the um, first door that leads to either the hallway leading to the first floor uh, by the front stairs or the lunchroom. And um, Baker saw a glimpse, and while while true, sorry, while Truly and Baker made their way up, uh, and Truly was um, going up to the third floor already. Um, Baker um, saw a glimpse, and uh, he he saw a glimpse through that glass pane of the door, and basically made his way through that door and confronted Oswald. When Truly realized that Baker wasn't following, he walked back. And opened the door and saw that Baker was confronting Oswald. Truly vouches for Oswald, and therefore Baker makes a 180, and they both go together up towards the roof of the actual Texas School Depository Building. That's roughly, in a nutshell, what it says. It's a little bit more detail as such. Right. Um, the... For 40 to 50 years, there have been the majority of the people that have been researching this piece, this part of the actual uh, assassination, they um, are in two camps. Obviously, the Oswald Did It group, which is a very small but very loud group, um, basically says, yeah, that's exactly how it happened. Oswald was confronted because he was shooting 
etc., etc., even though that no one can actually put Oswald on that sixth floor, but that's a whole different story. And then, of course, there are the conspiracy theorists who believe that Oswald made his way from the first floor to the front steps, sorry, to the uh, stairwell that is actually at the front of the building, near the front steps of the Texas School Book Depository, and went up there to get a Coke, and at that point got confronted by Baker and later on truly as such. And that there is no gray area in that. And um, I, the first thing I did actually when I started to study this part because was the history of it. How, uh, how did this story actually come together? But also what did the uh, researchers actually come up with? And the first person who actually did was Leo Sauvage, who was a um, correspondent in New York for um, Le Figaro, the French newspaper. And he started questioning it already in about two weeks' time after the assassination. He managed to interview Truly, and um, he wrote, later on wrote a hefty piece called The Oswald Affair. And in that, he, uh, he questioned the uh, second floor lunchroom encounter already. After that, you got probably the most significant one is Harold Weisberg. Weisberg questioned it in Whitewash 1, and in Whitewash 2, he actually devotes an entire chapter to it, and it's called Baker's Dozen. It's chapter 5, actually. Um, let me just quote this. What is presented in Whitewash on this encounter and both reconstructions which is the disproof of the Warren Report's version by the identical evidence the report cited is mild compared to the truth. Uh, that was Weisberg. Uh, you have to also take into consideration that Weisberg wrote this in the mid to the late 60s. And of course, he didn't have all the information that is available now. Um, Sylvia Maher did the same thing. Um, the difference is that Mar did it also in conjunction with other um, Texas School Book Depository employees. She brought up this whole thing with Charles Givens, for instance. And then there's Harold Ruffman, uh, presumed guilty. He uh, did a very good job. He brought in Shelley, Molina, Lovelady, and, of course, the timing of it. And, of course, he discussed the Malcolm Couch film. Malcolm Couch film partially captures Baker's run towards the Texas School Book Depository to the front steps. Um, then with the internet, it starts to become uh, a bit even better because you've got Michael T. Griffin in the late 90s. He publishes a piece called Proof That Oswald Did Not Shoot JFK, The Baker-Oswald Encounter. And he basically starts comparing all the statements made by Truly and Baker. And Weisberg did this as well, but he, the, he also brings in the timing scenarios much in more detail. And he brings in Couch, and but from my opinion, he relies a little bit too much on the timing segments. And then it gets even more interesting because that's when Greg Parker and Donald Willis erase the matter once more around the millennium. And especially Greg Parker chimes in in 2002 you can find these threads still in the uh, google news group i think it's alt j alt.jfk assassination 
And then it gets better because Sean Murphy basically brings in uh, about, well, roughly about six to eight years ago, starting at the Lancer Forum, which is defunct, but is about to be reinstated uh, through the Education Forum. And he basically starts talking a lot about the uh, deductions and also about the possibility that the whole thing didn't happen. I mean, Greg Parker and Donald Willis did this as well. That's they're actually the first guys. These three guys are actually putting the thesis forward that the lunchroom encounter itself just did not happen. Um, that really got my interest because um, it deviated from either from the two camps, basically uh, saying like, yeah, it did happen, but it just happened in a slightly different way because they say either proves his guilt or it proves his innocence as such. Whereas these guys basically said, no, it didn't happen. Uh, Jill Jesus is another guy who deserves a really good mention. Excellent researcher. Um, I put a link to an article that's called lunchroom encounter. And even that's a really good piece as well. Now, when, Sean Murphy departed the research community on the 50, exactly on the 50th anniversary. He, um, we as ROKC members more or less picked it up and went along with it more and more by going into greater detail. So those articles and those books, I read all of that. And then I basically started to uh, see if I could put it together in a more coherent way because to me every time i read an article it was only focused on a certain segment within that um that encounter so i thought well since everything is compartmentalized i'm going to compartmentalize the whole thing as well and as you can see in the article i basically talk about the actual run the stairs the elevators the actual encounter, what did they do after the, uh, the encounter, um, the reenactment, and so forth. So I think the best way to do is just step by step. I'm not going to recite the whole article because it's too much. It's 22,000, more than 22,000 words. <laughs> so I'm just going to uh, uh, just give you the most important bits. And um, so first of all, uh, Baker's run towards the Texas School Book Depository entrance. Now, like I said already earlier, the couch film partially captures it, but the Jimmy Donnell film captures it, captures it uh, to almost to the bit where he actually steps up to the curb. When you watch the film in real time, you are inclined to think that he is actually stepping up to the first step of the front steps of the Texas School Book Depository. But he's actually about 10 feet away. Uh, on my YouTube channel, there's a slow-mo of this. And there's another thing that is just, I was brought up by Bob Prudhomme about, I think about a year ago, uh, where he actually questioned whether he was going to go up those steps. And the problem is that if you start looking at it in slow motion, then you actually can see that Baker is veering to the right. He isn't veering to the left where he should have been because it would have been the logical way to go up there. Because if you pause the Darnell film just before the end of it, that, that segment of Baker's run, you can actually see that on the steps, the the banister is right in the middle of the of the steps. So let's so that's east and west. So the right side of that is the east side. And so on the east side of the steps, 
all the people are standing still. Whereas on the left-hand side, we, of course, see prayer, man, which has been discussed before. But we also see people moving up the steps. There's quite a few people standing at the bottom. They're basically trying to make their way up. And there's also a guy standing with his back towards prayer man, who we haven't identified because the thing is just a little bit too fuzzy. And if Baker wanted to go up those steps, he would have had to go left and actually go like to the right to the left of the banister, basically. That would have been the logical way to go up those steps. But as you look in the movie, he's veering to the right. Now, if you think that if you know that Baker basically responded because he saw he heard the shots he had been hunting the weekend before and um, he saw pigeons fly off the roof even that bit has been disputed but I've left it actually out because you know some people say well the the, the pigeons were near the railroad yard and on top of that other people say like well you know any shot from any direction would have actually scared those pigeons away be that as it may Baker hears the high-powered rifle shots and looks ahead and thinks they are coming from the Texas School Book Depository. Now, what people may have forgotten is that the Deltax and the Texas School Book Depository had fire escape stairs and they were external. Now, because Baker is veering to the right, I'm actually inclined to think that Baker first made a check of checking uh, to see whether anyone was descending from the fire escape and which is logical because you know if he thought like there it's happening high up he might just uh, just have a quick look around the corner to see if anyone would come down as such or look towards the tax building as such then there is a there is the fact that basically they're actually saying that they basically ran like hell according to the statements into the building as such now with the film is already starting to put serious doubt on that but there also are a few statements and of which i'm only managing uh, mentioning the most important one and that's by peggy joyce hawkins and peggy joyce hawkins was a lady who actually picked up her husband from the texas school book depository she was there with her child and she stood right next to next behind the the crowd uh, behind the retaining wall and in her statement she actually said that the I'll quote this. She stated that she stayed behind. She stated that she stayed behind the retaining wall until she realized that there would be no more shots, and then walked back to the front of the Texas School Book Depository building. She said that a motorcycle officer was in front of the building at this time, and that she heard over his radio some remarks about the railroad yards near the building. Now, this is verifiable stuff because first of all, the remark about the railroad yards is Jesse Curry, who basically made that. Uh, made that announcement right after they were speeding up to go to Parkland. He probably said it uh, when they were in, in, uh, underneath the triple underpass. So that's literally seconds after the shooting. And on top of that, in the couch film, Baker's motorcycle is being seen uh, at that spot where Peggy Joyce Hawkins was standing close by to. Motorcycle police officer and his radio. Um, it's it's not a big thing, but it's quite significant that the fact that she actually mentioned that he was standing in front of the steps, and that basically throws uh, it throws it into doubt a little bit about this whole storming up the of the steps. But again, it's only one statement as such. 
when you start looking deeper into it and you actually think like, well, there, since there are in the Darnell film, there are quite a few individuals standing on those steps. So who actually saw Baker going up those steps of the Texas School Book Depository? Now, in the Darnell film, we recognize Buell Frazier. We've recognized Joe Molina, Roy Truly, and Baker himself, of course. And then when you go into the testimonies of Frazier and Molina, none of them actually see Baker going in there. And I'll just quote this a little bit here from, from the Warren Commission testimony of Bill Frazier. Did you see anybody after that come into the building while you were there? You mean somebody other than that didn't work there? A police officer? No, sir. I stood there a few minutes, you know, and some people who worked there. You only normally start to go back into the building because a lot of us didn't eat our lunch. So we started back into the building and it wasn't but just a few minutes that there was a lot of police officers and so forth all over the building there. Then you went back into the building, did you? Right. And before you went back into the building, no police officer came up the steps and into the building. Not that I know. They could walk by the, by the way and I was standing there talking to somebody else and didn't see it. So again, but the thing is, Fraser stands practically right in front of the door opening. So if anyone would have gone past with a helmet on, he probably would have seen it. Then you've got Joe Molina. He does the same thing. And he repeats this. He says this in his Warren Commission testimony, which he actually requested to do. He demanded to be heard. And also during his HSCA's testimony. We managed to get uh, Molina's HSCA's testimony from NARA about, uh, I think, four or five months ago. And again, he just says, like, I only saw Truly go in. I didn't see anyone else go in as such. Um, the only one that actually mentions that she saw a helmeted officer go in is Pauline Sanders. Uh, Pauline Sanders is quite an interesting person because she's one of Truly's secretaries. And she apparently stood close to Melina on the steps of the Texas School Book Depository. But we haven't managed to identify her in the Darnell film. But she mentioned an FBI affidavit of November the 24th. So that's when Oswald's already been frozen. She said in a matter of 10 seconds, a uniformed police officer in a white helmet ran into the building. But she did not observe him any further and could not state where he went in the building. Um, there's no mention of truly at all. You know, Sanders' statements overall and that of uh, fellow co-workers like Mrs. Robert Heath, which we'll talk about soon enough. Um, have to be taken with a huge grain of salt. Um, there is, uh, I made a post about this uh, on my uh, blog about uh, some conversations that they supposedly have. Both of them had the exact conversation with O.V. Campbell, who was at that time uh, the vice president of the building. Uh, O.V. Campbell, Ocus, Ocus is his first name. O.V. Campbell was the, um, was Roy Truly's boss, basically. Um, so then you get like to the bit where, so if very few people actually see Baker go inside that building and it's more than likely that Baker stood actually near the steps or at the front of the building to make sure that nobody would leave. It was, I think it's more logical because that's what they're taught at police. They're not taught to run inside and just do a John Rambo and go after the after the killer. On top of that, there are many entry and exit points at the Texas School Book Depository. So 
it didn't it didn't from a common sense point of view it doesn't yeah it doesn't make sense <laughs> the vestibule which is the area between the glass door and the double doors that lead to the shipping area is an area that has a, an elevator in it and also a set of stairs that lead to the second floor now the elevator itself went only to the fourth floor the fifth and the sixth floor were used more for storage made sense but um, there is very little uh, talk about the fact that Baker meets truly yet they're having a conversation but at the same time this conversation happens in like different places because Baker says at one point that he walks into the vestibule and then basically starts asking where the elevator is and where basically truly steps up and says come with me officer uh, truly says in a FBI affidavit that they they saw no one there which is rather peculiar because basically truly is saying that when they ran into the lobby or the vestibule no one was there and uh, various statements say the otherwise because people went back in almost immediately and um, in Larry Sneed's no more silence for instance Baker states but most of them that were standing in front of it were going into the Texas School Book Depository building when I got there I asked her which way were the stairs or the elevator and this man stepped up and said officer come on I'm the building supervisor Whereas, as I said, truly said, they saw no one there. The the whole bit of them running up to the stairs together is is rubbish. It doesn't exist. Only in one statement as such. Um, they, if you look through the statements overall, that's when the real problems actually show. Um, of course, uh, Baker's first statement, of course, is a, is a gem, in the sense that um, it doesn't mention the second floor it mentions a third or fourth floor i'll get back into that in a moment um and also there are many important bits missing you see that um in the due course of time from the 22nd until the warren commission hearings a lot seems to be added on uh there's stuff that's been added on um in the Secret Service statements of early December 1963, and then also just before the Warren uh, Commission hearings as well. And then even after that, in September of 64, um, there are still statements being taken from Truly and from Baker, which is rather um, hard to believe because um, Baker and Truly give their statements, uh, Truly gives uh, two to the FBI and one to the Dallas police. Then he gives one to the Secret Service as well on December the 8th. And then they do the Warren Commission hearings. And then on the day before the Warren report is issued, so we're talking about the books been the books have been printed up, actually, because LBJ is getting them the day after. They actually have the FBI take statements from Truly and from Baker in Dallas and have them airtailed, which was back then uh, the quickest way of um, 
moving a message back and forth to, uh, between uh, different cities. Um, have these Airtel back right on that day. Um, I've, we found a cover letter of this. I hadn't seen it before. We, everyone's seen the report, but the actual cover letter we got about three, four months ago uh, from NARA. And that, and that one, it just shows like how important for them it is to get this stuff back uh, pronto because as you all know after that, the day after LBJ got hold of the set of the Warren Commission uh, report. The, the problem is overall are the discrepancies in the statements, like I already said, and um, you also start looking into the Warren Commission testimony of these people, especially Truly and Baker, and there are more discrepancies there, like whether, whether Baker and Truly actually uh, ran in together, whether they actually um, ran diagonally across the, the floor, and this is something also people need to understand is that from a timing perspective, this building is very small. This is only about roughly about a hundred foot square. So if you cross that, then that is, you know, they say that the timing was about two minutes. Well, you ask yourself that if Baker was running so fast into that building as they, as everyone believes by looking at the, the Darnell film and the statements of them basically running up the stairs together, running like hell. And then inside, running on a good trot, which for like maybe a jog or whatsoever, uh, maybe a, fa a slightly faster jog, then um, they would have been up there on the second floor in about 40 seconds flat. Now, I'm not saying that can that could still make um, Oswald come down in time, because it could, because overall, I find uh, the Warren Commission has been incredibly generous with timings of people up those steps, up those stairs, um, the back, back stairs, because um, they're very small. There's about eight or nine steps at uh, the top of my head, and there's like a small landing of maybe about three feet square, and then um, there's a next set of steps. So, you know, you're talking going up there would take about six or seven seconds. So overall, just one floor, it, it, it really doesn't take a lot of time. I'll probably, you know, if you go up fast, it'll probably take five. Um, so from the statements, what you can see is that, A, there's things that are being built up, added on, and so forth. And on top of that, the discrepancies. Now, the discrepancies also, they start with the elevators. That's where some really good um, discrepancies show up. Uh, Roy Tooley's statement to the FBI on the November the 22nd makes no mention of any elevators at all. His Dallas Police Department statement on November 23rd doesn't mention a lot about this either. Besides, the officer I went through Sorry, the officer and I went through the shipping department to the freight elevator. We then started up the stairway. There's no mention of any lifts being stuck on the fifth floor, etc. None of that whatsoever. However, his statement to the FBI on the 23rd. So that's his third statement. They stopped at the freight elevator and observing that these elevators were not on the first floor. They ran up the stairway after he showed the officer where the stairway was. Now, in the Secret Service statement from December the 8th, 19. 63. It says, we passed momentarily by the freight elevator, but since neither were on this floor, we ran up the back stairway up to the second floor. 
in this Warren Commission testimony, he goes in and he talks quite a lot about it, about the dialogue. He says, like, turn loose the elevator. He starts yelling up the shaft, etc., etc. And he tells a really neat little story. But the problem is that nobody, no one can actually back this up besides Truly. When Truly... Um, in the sorry, in um, Marion Baker in the Dallas Police Department statement from November the 22nd says, I followed the man to the rear of the building and he said, let's take the elevator. The elevator was hung several floors up, so we used the stairs instead. Now, so he said, he said, let's take the elevator. Truly said, let's take the elevator. And now, in during his Warren Commission testimony, Baker says, then what did he do? He hollered for it and said, bring that elevator down here, which is, of course, that sounds different to turn loose the elevator. Anyway, how many times did he holler to the best of your recollection? It seemed like he did it twice. All right. Then what did he do? I said, let's take the stairs. So here's the question. Did truly said let's take the stairs or did Baker said let's take the stairs? Now, the funny thing is, is that neither uh like in this case david bellin pointed that discrepancy out whatsoever and this one of the many things that basically points to that they're actually opposites um the the problem as well is of course um jack edwin doherty now jack edwin doherty was somebody who was on the fifth floor and he hears one loud bang and then makes his way down and he uses the west elevator so he says, and he's then being asked whether he hears truly yell anything up the elevator shaft. And he says, I didn't hear anybody yell. Now, the problem with Doherty is that he sounds rather confused, especially from timing perspective. But he was 40 years old. And he was still living with his parents. He was discharged from the army. He had a medical discharge. Uh, suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And he was somebody who looked after various uh, fire equipment before all the office workers started their work. Uh, I've read that Molina opened the door in those days at 7 o'clock and that he always uh, saw Jack Doherty standing there waiting to get in as well. Um, Troy West, same thing. Troy West could have been an excellent witness. Troy West was one of the Negro workers who was on the first floor. And same with Eddie Piper. And um, Troy, West, Troy West's testimony actually points out the, the amount of pressure that has been applied to overall with the black workers inside the Texas School Book Depository. This is something that hasn't really been touched by anyone. Um, yet if you start reading their statements, it um, becomes abundantly clear that these people have been pressurized into um, pressured into um, not saying too much, not to be too smart or clever for their own good. And we know what Dallas was like in the 60s. Um, these people uh, were sorry for the word, but they were regarded as second rate citizens and um you know women didn't have a lot to say those days and uh it's pretty obvious that uh, the blacks uh, back then uh, had uh, even less to say the um 
when you read Troy West, I just quote a bit of Troy West, actually. That is okay if you don't remember. This is David Bellum. This is, that is okay if you don't remember. That is all I want you to say if you don't remember. Did you hear anyone yelling to let the elevator loose or anything like that? I can't remember. Were you working when you were eating your lunch? Were you facing the elevator or not when you were eating your lunch? Were you facing any of the elevators back there? No, sir. I was always, I mean, I would always be with my back kind of, you know, towards the elevators and facing the front side over on the side. The Elm Street side, toward Elm Street side. So you don't know whether anyone was using the elevators. No, sir, I don't. And it's the same thing with Eddie Piper. Eddie Piper was also downstairs and basically sees truly run in the building with a police officer. But here he says that after a few minutes, see now a few minutes is two or three, maybe four minutes. And that's already makes it, makes it a problem from a timing perspective. But at the same time, he claims he doesn't know anything. He has absolutely no idea. He just says like, yeah. He says, I don't know whether it was a policeman or FBI or who it was, but another fellow was with him. And where were you? Standing right there where they made coffee. What did they do? He ran in and yelled, where's the elevator? And I said, I don't know, sir, Mr. Truly. They'd taken off and went up on the stairway, and that's all I know about that. This whole thing about, I don't know, what, the elevator? The elevator is, you know, is it there or not? Because the thing is, Jack Doherty went downstairs through the west, with the west elevator, and his first point of contact was Eddie Piper. Doc, Doherty and Piper both discussed the shooting, and he's, Doherty says, I heard one shot, yet Piper says, I heard three. Um, so that's just like the ground floor. Well, actually, it's just the first floor, but it's the ground floor of the building. <clears throat> but it's actually called the first floor. Um, the top of the steps, that's where the front steps, that's where actually the first floor starts. Um, the, then if you just start the progress about the stairs, and then, then it becomes really interesting because you have... The fact that truly stated that he ran ahead of Baker up the stairs. Now let's just picture this scene here. There's been the there's been shooting at the president. There's a possible gunman inside the building who probably wants to make his descent. And um, I'm the building supervisor, and there's a police officer coming in, and I need to tell this police officer how to get upstairs. Now, if I if the guy's got a gun, the police officer, and if the assassin has got a gun, why would I run ahead and be actually in between and get caught up in a crossfire as such? So the thing is, is that Baker himself makes only the briefest of mention of this whole thing, of this Martin's Warren Commission testimony. He says, Mr. Truly had come up to my side here while he confronted Oswald. Now, other than that, there's nothing about this in any of his statements. But Roy Truly, he has loads to say. But not at first, because in his first handwritten statement, there's no mention of him being ahead. Nor is there anything in his typed-up version from November the 23rd. Nor in his FBI statement, statements from the 22nd and November the 23rd. But in his Secret Service statement from December the 8th, so we're talking two weeks after, 16 days after the assassination, he says, 
I started to go up the stairway to the third floor when I noticed that the officer was not following and I heard him say something. I then went back and found that he was standing near the entrance of the lunchroom. This is where the bit actually is being created, the, 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 the falsehood of truly being ahead of Oswald, um, sorry, of Baker going up those stairs. Now, where does it get problematic for this? It's actually going back to Leo Sauvage in the Oswald affair. In the National Guardian, which publicizes the Oswald affair, yeah, March 24th, 1964, I'll quote this. We ran to the freight elevators in the back of the building because the front elevators do not go beyond the fourth floor. But the two freight cars had both been left somewhere up in the top floors, and we took the stairs, the officer ahead of me. When I reached the second floor landing, the officer was already at the open door of the lunchroom. Now, this is something you can't really screw up. I mean, if you know that you've gone up the steps, yeah, of, of, towards the third floor already, then you'd know that because you basically, he says, I stepped back and went towards the lunchroom and basically saw Baker confronting Oswald. But in this interview, he says, the officer is ahead of me. Now, listeners will think, well, okay, small discrepancy, but it gets better. Because in December 7th of 1963, the issue of the Detroit Free Press, I'm just saying, this stuff's all on my uh, on my website in, in the article, and it has links to all these newspapers. Truly is quoted as saying, the policeman ran up the stairs ahead of me. And when I arrived on the second floor, he had his pistol out and was confronting Lee Oswald in the doorway of a little lunchroom. And you think, okay, that's true. Well, how about a third one for good measure? In the New York Journal American of May 24th, 1964, truly states, the, the policeman was a few steps ahead of me, and when I got inside the lunchroom, the officer was covering Oswald with a gun. So that's three newspaper articles in uh, a time span of almost six months. So, you know, which begs the question that if Baker went ahead of Truly, why change his story around? Could it be, you know, to isolate Os Baker and Oswald's encounter at first? If Truly had only said he saw the glimpse too, then, you know, it would have been much easier. The glimpse, of course, is the second floor lunchroom encounter. The official story is basically that when Baker and Truly reach the second floor, Truly turns around left and makes his way up to the third floor. Now, he's gone up three, two, three steps, which is nothing. I'm not kidding. This is like two feet off that level, the second floor level. And Baker says he sees a glimpse behind the glass of the door. Now, in the article, I drew... I put up the maps, the floor plans, and also a ton of pictures that were taken uh, on the day and then uh, during the days after of the actual second floor. And, you know, they're aimed inside the lunchroom, and from the back of the lunchroom back out, etc., etc. Now, there's one major issue with the whole thing uh, from a physical point of view, and that is the door. Now, the door had a self-closing mechanism. And I read in Barry Ernest's fabulous book, The Girl on the Stairs, which is an absolutely fantastic book, that Ernest, after interviewing Truly, 
a few years after the assassination, went, he snuck upstairs and he tested the closure of the door. And the door took three seconds, a good three seconds to close. Sorry. The door itself is at a 45 degree angle. So if you're looking at the pictures and the map, then it means that if you look at the angle of that door, the only way to see something behind that bit of glass inside that door would have meant that the person would have had to practically stand behind that glass such. And take into consideration that it takes three seconds to, for the door to close. Now, Baker stated the door was closed when truly went back to see Baker. The door was closed. He had to open the door and, according to him, lean in to see Baker covering Oswald with a gun. Now, if you just think about it, you're on the first floor. Both of you standing at the elevators, allegedly, and you decide to go up the stairs. Now, these stairs are eight, nine steps high, so 16 or 18. Why is there already, first, first of all, why is there such a distance between Truly and Baker after one floor already? That's the problem. Then, of course, the viewing angle at which Baker saw Oswald allegedly walking down towards the lunchroom as such. With the door being closed, and then also with the door being closed again when Truly makes his way back. So Truly didn't see it open, didn't hear it open, nothing. The door was closed and Baker was inside already. Why is there already such? Because Baker has to run into that, open that door, yeah, and then walk in and close it, and then start talking towards Oswald, and then truly has to make his way back towards that door. Um, the best thing to do is go to the article and check the floor plan and the, and the actual photographs, and you just see that there's a, um, a huge problem with this, this setup as such, because the landing itself is tiny. It is really, really small. It's not big at all. The other problem is, Baker's first statement. Now, his first affidavit on November the 22nd, Baker mentions an encounter on the third or the fourth floor, as I mentioned earlier. He makes no mention of a lunchroom and instead describing the encounter in an open area. It states, a man walking away from the stairway. Now, it's very hard to believe that Baker lost his sense of direction and mixed up the third or fourth floor with the second floor lunchroom area. The the additional is that the additional bit is that Baker's statement is typed up and signed by him. Now he had plenty of time to think it over when signing the typed up statement and therefore confirming his first handwritten report. This report gets absolutely no mention in the Warren Commission testimony whatsoever. He also describes the person he apprehended as follows: as a 30 years old, 5'9", 165 pounds. Lee Oswald was 24 years old. 5'9 and weighed 131 pounds. The description that Baker gives of the suspect he actually apprehends 
matches, not only Howard Brennan, but also Arnold Rowland's description of the man he sees on the sixth floor. And also, I never, never think that Oswald was 30 years old. I mean, you know, he looks like in his mid-20s, but I wouldn't give him 30 years old. Anyway. The problem with the other, the other, with his statement is, and this is where Marvin Johnson comes in. And Marvin Johnson is quite an important character. He's a lieutenant, and he's photographed um, outside the Texas School Book Depository on the front steps when he has a pen or pencil holding up a bottle, and also an officer next to him, I forgot his name, holds up that massive bag that uh, supposedly carried uh, Oswald's rifle well-oiled rifle with no oil stains in it. And um, he actually takes Baker's statement. And Oswald is in full view of Baker because Oswald's being brought in and Baker sees him. But Baker says at no time, that's the man I, I encountered. He never said that. Yet Marvin Johnson says so. He actually just states not only that, um, sorry, that he says it on about the fourth floor. Baker apprehended a man that was walking away from the stairway on that floor. He could therefore confirms Baker's uh, first affidavit. But he also says that he starts frisking him. And he also states that Baker points him out as the man, Oswald, as the man who he apprehended. And then on top of that, he says that Baker recognized him in a lineup. And that's rubbish as well, because Baker actually refuted that on in his Warren Commission testimony. Uh, Marvin Johnson uh, made an absolute mess of uh, of his of, of of his statement as such. Um, he's in with the fix so, somehow, because what he did um, makes no sense whatsoever. And it cannot be uh, corroborated in any form. Then there's uh, Stavazelis, who was Baker's commander, and he uh, he didn't have a high opinion of Baker, in all honesty. I've um, heard uh, the interviews that Dennis Morissette did, and uh, on several uh, occasions he uh, slams Baker down for not calling it in, which would have been normal police procedure, and on top of that for not sealing the building, and instead of that going up those stairs. Um, Alice's work or statements cannot really be taken seriously because it floats all over the place. He says in the early 90s that Oswald was having a Coke and eating a candy bar. Um, he then says that Oswald was stopped um, on the third or the fourth floor drinking water from the water cooler and so on. So it's, it becomes a... Stavis Alice is not very reliable when it comes to his statements regarding Baker's encounter. It changes every time. I've I've put a few bits in the article, um, like in Larry Sneed's uh, No More Silence, for instance, and the um, statement he gave for the uh, Garrison interview, Garrison investigation, and, of course, the uh, telephone interview with uh, Dennis Morissette, and it varies. But overall... He was basically uh, skating uh, on ba off Baker because of what he did by not sealing the building. Um, then you get to um, by the next thing.
besides these statements, I'll get back into them a few more later on, but it's basically regarding Oswald's position inside the lunchroom. And literally, he's almost anywhere. He's standing next to the Coke machine. He is standing uh, in the doorway of the, sec- uh, the second floor lunchroom. He is sitting down at, in the lunchroom. Now, uh, what people, what listeners need to understand is that the first floor uh, lunchroom called the domino room was the lunchroom for the workers. The second floor lunchroom was for office personnel and management. Right next to the lunchroom was the actual, were the actual offices as such. Rolo said in a Lachine's book that the second floor was solely for office workers and that you only go in there to basically get a cold drink and basically make your way out there. Anyone who states, like Caroline Arnold, for instance, that Oswald was actually sitting in that lunchroom is actually talking complete rubbish because they weren't meant to mix as such. There is a certain form of segregation because if Oswald can go in there, the black guys could go in there and sit there as well. And there's no way in hell that was going to happen. You know, that was an unofficial way of of segregating the workers from the office work, uh, the office personnel and the management as such, because Ocus Campbell had his office up there. Truly secretaries were working upstairs as well. Now I want to talk about um, truly secretaries. The Roy Truly's first statement, written statement, has Mrs. Reed's name in the bottom left corner uh, written down as such. And it's more used as like a referral that she should be talked to. Well, Mrs. Reed's story is basically that she was standing outside with Ocus Campbell and Roy Truly. They're having a quick chat, and then she makes her way back into the building via the front entrance, going up the front stairs, and basically go into the offices. Now, the offices are right, as I said, adjacent to the uh, lunchroom. And she basically stated that she saw Oswald in a white t-shirt with a Coke in his hand. And she said, did you hear the president was being shot, blah, blah, blah. And that he mumbled something back and that was it. And he basically made his way out to the um, front entrance of the offices to go down the stairs towards the first floor as such. There's uh, quite a few problems with Mrs. Reed's statements because first of all, she said that he was wearing a t-shirt, whereas Baker described he was wearing a long-sleeved shirt, brownish. And that's what truly attested to as well. So that's already a huge problem. The other bit is, uh, uh, sorry, I have to mention that back then in those days that the workers had their shirts, they would take the shirt off because it was outerwear, and then inside they would wear their t-shirts and work. And then if they go out, they basically put their shirt on as such. Now, that's so. First of all, the the shirt and the uh, long sleeve shirt discrepancy. Then, of course, is the, the the bit with the coke, because the coke bit is was actually they're trying to nail Oswald with by going up to the second floor to grab this coke. Now, Oswald said that in in his first statement, 
by um, Dallas police captain uh, J- uh, William Fritz that, that he'd gone to get a coke from the second floor. This is the bit that actually nicks uh, Oswald because he actually admits going up there to get this coke. They actually put it together in such a way that he went upstairs after his lunch in the domino room, as per statement, to get this coat and basically gets confronted by Baker. Whereas it's more likely that Oswald got the coke to go downstairs and have it with his lunch as such. Now, Robert Reed, Mrs. Robert Reed, the secretary, the coke bit was inserted at the top in her handwritten statement on the November the 24th. You know, it, I don't know what to think of it, but the fact that it's inserted is a little bit odd. But, you know, it's like an add-on afterwards just to make sure that he gets nailed for it because it um, puts him in a specific location as such. Oswald had a Coke, which was inserted at the top in her handwritten statement on November the 24th. And you can think about that, whatever you want. Um, it also appears in her November 26th FBI affidavit. But it was Oswald who mentioned to Fritz that he had gotten a coke from the second floor lunchroom. But Reed's DPD affidavit is actually the first mention of a coke in Oswald's hands. Um, truly doesn't mention it. Baker doesn't mention it. And this is what they're also busy trying to separate Reed from Truly and Baker. So basically that Oswald got the coke after the encounter. Or did he have it in his hands? That's another, another big enigma. But the thing with Reed's hearsay is also written down in Pauline Sanders' FBI statement of November the 24th. Now, she was the only one that basically said that there was a white-helmeted officer dashing in without a mention of Truly. But on page two of her FBI statement, she says that she's had a telephone conversation with Sanders, and this is declared as gospel. And basically, she, she, Sanders recites what Reed had had experienced about encountering Oswald, the mumbling, the coke, and so forth. But the problem with the whole Reed story is that the office was occupied by someone else at the same time, and her name was Geneva Hine. And Geneva Hine stayed behind because she'd seen the motorcade before. So she said, you guys go, I will look after the telephone. And she noticed, actually, that the phone lines and the power were shut down while the motorcade passed the building. And as per her statement, she said of the November the 23rd, she stated, and this is damning, she was alone in the office between 12.25 and 12.35 p.m. Now, as you all know, the official story is that Oswald left the building within three minutes. That's what the official story says. She also, in also in that very same statement, at the end it says, in conclusion, Mrs. Hine advised that she saw Lee Harvey Oswald almost every day at work. However, she did not see him at all on November the 22nd in 1963. So how can this be in that small office where Mrs. Reed is encountering Oswald two minutes after 
the actual encounter uh, after the actual encounter, which was at about the 90 second to the two minute mark. And she actually sees him and has a, has a, a chat with him. And Mrs. Hine doesn't see him or hear him or re at all. As a matter of fact, she says the first person she encountered inside the office was a police officer who wanted to get hold of the phone. So in her Warren Commission testimony, she doesn't tr she tries not to stitch up Reed. This is very important because these two people are working in the same room. Now, although her statement contradicts what Reed says, during the testimony, she's basically ooing and eyeing her way through it. So let me just go through this. When you came back in, did you see Mrs. Reed? No, sir. I don't believe there was a soul in the office when I came back in right then. And so what people need to know is also that she went out the office, knocked on the door of, a, of an adjacent office. Nobody, although she heard somebody talking on the phone, nobody answered that door and it was locked. She then went back to the office and she didn't see anyone. No, sir. After I answered the telephone, then there was about four or five people that came in. Was there anybody in that room when you came back in and went to the telephone? No, sir. Not to my knowledge. Did you see Mrs. Reed come back in? Yes, sir. I think I felt sure that I did. I thought there were five or six that came in together. I thought she was one of those. Mrs. Reed told us she came in alone. And when she came in, she didn't see anybody there. And this is where the cover, cover your ass bit comes up. Well, it could bet she did, sir. I was talking on the phones and then came the policeman and then came the press. Everybody was wanting an outside line. And then a vice president came in and he said, the next one was clear. I have to have it. And, I, and so I was busy with the phone. From the time you walked into the room, you became immediately busy with the phones. Yes, sir. Sure was. Did you see Oswald come in? My back would have been to the door. He was supposed to have come in at. Were you facing the door he's supposed to have left by? Yes, sir. Do you recall seeing him? No, sir. Do you have a definite collection of Mrs. Reed coming in? No, sir. I only saw four or five people that came by and they all came and were all talking about how terrible it was. Do you remember their names? Yes, sir. Who were they? Mr. Williams, Mr. Molina, Miss Martha Reed, Mrs. Reed, Miss Sarah Stanton and Mr. Campbell. That's all I recall, sir. So that on its own is all and the statement by, uh, by Geneva Hein before is already enough to doubt Reed's story. On top of that, Reed's story mentions the white T-shirt and the coke so now you think like okay that's quite a bit to actually dispute what reed has been saying but it gets better because then there's sarah stanton sarah stanton stood on the stairs but in her fbi affidavit it stated that she went upstairs immediately after the assassination up to the second floor where hein and allegedly reed were as well so how can this be see this nullifies reed's statement even more and Stanton is recognized by Hine coming in the office as part of a group of Texas, Texas School Book Depository employees mentioned earlier, along with Reed and along with Molina and so forth. It's pretty evident, evident that Oswald did not walk through that office because even though Hine had her back towards one entrance, she was facing the other while she was talking on the phone. She would have seen him. And she also stated the day after the assassination, 
that she didn't see him, whereas she was always saw him every day walking in. And this comes to the bit where uh, Robert Groden uh, a few years ago came up with a story uh, about the, the change and stuff like that, um, which was partially true. Um, Oswald used to come in uh, to get um, change for the uh, Coke machine as such. Now, now that we're talking about the Coke, there's no mention of any Coke in Baker's affidavits from November 63. And in his Warren Commission testimony, he said, was he carrying anything in his hands? He had nothing at that time. However, Baker's statement is being taken on September 23rd, 1964 for the FBI. As I said earlier, the day before the Warren report is issued. And in his handwritten statement, he actually states at first that he was having a Coke, but it gets stricken, stricken through and initialed by Baker. And in a typed up report, the stricken through bits are obviously missing. Um, the other mistake that um, Baker made was that he said second or third floor. So again, he just couldn't keep the story straight. You know, not 10 months after the assassination, he still was messing up. Truly refutes that Oswald had a Coke. He just says, no, he didn't have a Coke, no drink at all. He was just standing there. Mrs. Reed, in her commission, in her Warren Commission testimony, you said he mumbled something. He did. Could you even remember one word that he mumbled? I did not because he kept moving, and I did too. And I was just not interested in what he was saying. It was just the excitement of time, and I didn't even say, it. what did you say? Because I wasn't interested. And if only she was interested, that would have been more interesting. Um, Otis Williams makes a, um, a, a mention of this in Larry Sneed as well. He says that he and the officer thought the shots had come from the roof. And as they were going up steps, the officer saw Oswald with a Coke and said, who's that? Truly responded, oh, he works here. And they went on. And as I also said, Louis, um, Leo Sauvage in the Lowell Sun of December the 26th. So that's just over a month after. At that moment, we are told officially Oswald was already in the lunchroom with a Coca-Cola bottle in his hand. This, meet, uh, this means that, assuming he was the assassin, he had to cross the floor from the window where the shots were fired to the opposite side of the building in order to reach the staircase. After concealing the rifle behind some packing boxes, run down four flights of stairs, walk to the lunchroom, put a dime in the vending machine and open the bottle. Truly, and the policeman did not report that Oswald was panting, panting nor show other signs of having been running. That's what they also said. He was calm as a cucumber. Then, Leo Savage in the Lowell Sun of December the 26th, 1963, so just after a month after, he basically says that Oswald makes his descent and he gets to the lunchroom, he walks to the lunchroom, put a dime in the vending machine and opened the bottle. Truly and the policeman did not report that Oswald was panting nor show other signs of having been running. And this is the thing, the Coke story is actually gradually evolving in a way it isn't been mentioned by Truly and Baker it is mentioned by Reed, but at the same time, the reporters start to make a mention of it that is actually happening. Um, like I said, Otis Williams earlier, Harry Dean Holmes makes no mention of the Coke in this December 13, 17th, 1963 report. But in his Warren Commission testimony, he says, he says, it seems like he was drinking a Coca-Cola, standing there by the Coca-Cola machine, drinking a Coca-Cola. Again, 
with the confrontation, where was Oswald standing? Was he standing in the doorway? Was he moving away from Baker? Was he standing near the Coca-Cola machine? Was he sitting down having his lunch? Again, there are so many different stories that nobody's actually saying, like, no, this is what's happened. That's it. Um, Stavazalas did the same thing, as I said before. And then it actually goes about if if there's so much to doubt about the actual encounter, where is Oswald actually? Because if the tr second tr second floor lunchroom encounter doesn't happen, didn't happen, then where was maybe Oswald was encountered somewhere else? Now some researchers they uh, they think that Oswald walked from from the first floor up the front stairs uh, inside the building towards the um, lunchroom as such. But that doesn't make any sense because if you study the floor plans of the first floor and look where the domino room is, then the back stairs are much closer than the actual front stairs unless Oswald was standing near the front stairs. So, but that's just pure guesswork. However, there are many reports that point to the fact that Oswald was encountered on the first floor. Bob Considine of the Hearst Press, for example, is told that Oswald had been questioned inside the building almost before the smoke from the assassin's gun had disappeared. Now, that doesn't sound like an encounter on the second floor 90 seconds after the deed, does it? But anyway, that's only one small thing because... Roy Trulli was overheard by Ken Biffle, who reported in the November 23rd edition of the Dallas Morning News, and I'll quote this, in a storage room on the first floor, the officer, gone drown, spotted Oswald. Does this man work here? The officer reportedly asked Trulli. Trulli, who said he had interviewed and had hired Oswald a couple of months earlier, reportedly told the policeman that Oswald was a worker. Uh, Biffle makes another mention of this on November the 21st, 2000. He rephrases it a little bit, but he says the superintendent would recall later that he and the policeman met Oswald as they charged into the building after the shots were fired. Ocas Campbell, the vice president of the Texas School Book Depository, is quoted in the New York Herald Tribune on November the 22nd. We saw him in a small storage room on the ground floor. Then we noticed he was gone. Then there's Detective Ed Hicks, who's quoted in the London Free Press on the 23rd, and in uh, various other newspapers have um, copied this bit. As a presidential limousine sped to the hospital, the police dragnet went into action. Hicks said at just about that time, Oswald came out the front door of the red brick warehouse. A policeman asked him where he was going. He said he wanted to see what all the excitement was about. In the Sydney Morning Herald, as an Australian newspaper, of course, on the 24th, uh, take into consideration the uh, time difference, police said that a man who was identified as Oswald walked through the door of the warehouse and was stopped by a policeman. Oswald told the policeman, I work here. And when another employee confirmed that he did, the policeman let Oswald walk away, they said. Henry Wade, uh, during the press conference, um, which was published unedited in the New York Times on November the 26th. And this was a find only recently by Terry Martin. 
earlier this year. It was after Mark Lane's death that we started to look around and we found this article by accident. And that's, some, that's sometimes the beauty of this uh, whole research. It's like uh, sometimes this stuff just drop in your lap. Um, the quote here is, a police officer immediately after the assassination ran into the building and saw this man in a corner and tried to arrest him, but the manager of the building said he was an employee and it was all right. Every other employee was located, located, but this defendant of the company. A description and name of him went into out to police to look for him. Um, Hoover, in his telephone conversation with LBJ, says at the entrance of the building, he was stopped by police officers. Well, he's all right. He works here. You needn't hold him. They let him go. So these are all like newspaper and conversation, newspaper reports and quotes and um, conversations as such. But basically point that Oswald was stopped near the front entrance of the building, which is the first floor. And in Gary Savage's book, First Day Evidence, which came out, I think, in the early 90s, um, Baker, who is... Um, identified as Officer Y. I don't know why he did that, but it was the only guy who, who went in at that point in the uh, Texas School Book Depository Building because everybody else was going through the railroad yards. Shortly after I entered the building, I confronted Oswald. The man who said he was the building superintendent said that Oswald was all right, that he was an employee there. And here comes the hammer. We left Oswald there and the supervisor showed me the way upstairs. Going upstairs after confronting Oswald, but so there's already these all these these reports, and then of course there's a video in my article of Jesse Curry, who's being interviewed in the hallway of the Dallas Police Department, and in the article, let me just quickly go through this because it's quite interesting. At five twenty-five of that particular video. Reporter, could you detail for us what led you to Oswald? Chief Curry, not exactly, except uh, in the building. We, uh, when we went uh, in the building, why he was observed in the building at the time, but the manager told us that he worked there and the officer passed him on up then because the manager said he was an employee. And a little later at 6.41, reporter, did you say, Chief, that the policeman had seen him in the building? Yes. After the shot was fired? Yes. Um, why didn't he uh, arrest him then? Because the manager of the place told us that he was an employee, said he's all right, he's an employee. Did he look suspicious to the policeman at this point? I imagine the policeman was checking everyone he saw as he went into the building. And at 10.42 of the same video, reporter. And you have witnesses who could place him there after the, after the time of the shooting. My police officer can place him there after the shooting. Your officer wanted to stop him, and then he was told by the by the manager that he worked there. Yes. Again, there's no mention of a second floor, no lunchroom, no nothing. Now, this article is a part one of four, because the Prayer Man movie was 100 minutes long, and I thought it was just too long, so I'm going to do four one-hour movies. Um because I've got way too much info, and um, I experienced that during my talk at the uh, Canterbury Center, the Dealey Plaza UK Canterbury Seminar. I was given two hours, and I had to cut cut down on things. Um, 
you know, we're going to talk here for about an hour and a half to two hours. And I only had a half an hour to talk about the second floor lunchroom encounter. Um, the, this is the first part. The second part is the Oswald interrogations. The third part is going to be about the Texas School Book Depository employees. And um, the fourth part is going to talk about the film material and Prayer Man specifically. Now, <coughs> excuse me. I'm going to talk a little bit about the interrogations because they actually display where Oswald was during the shooting and so forth. Now, the most important one of, of all, because there's very little available, um, I'm writing the article as we speak. And I've got, I've written about 10 pages so far. I think it's going to be about 20 odd instead of 81, uh, for this article. Um, Will Fritz, of course, is the main guy. And the biggest piece is, of course, the interrogation notes that were donated to the ARRB in late 1996, which were, um, donated by, uh, an anonymous source, but, uh, People expected to be that he was uh, that it was done by family member. Um, in that, in those notes, there are a few gems. Um, on page one, it states that he claims second floor coke when, and then his next line is officer came in, off came in, officer came in. Um, this has been interpreted as um, by some that. He was on the second floor when the officer came in. But the problem is, is that if you look at the handwritten notes and you compare them to, because they're like in columns, because they were written down on like small notebook pages, is that Fritz did not start new sentences at the beginning or on the left-hand side of his notebook. He sometimes wrote um, a beginning of sentences on the right side. So claim second floor coke when officer came in is, is the second sentence basically. But when officer came in, it says after that to first floor had lunch. So it's, it's very um, scattered. It's very hard to identify um, what, what is actually being said here. But the most important bit is actually what I'm going to say now, because it says, out with Bill Shelley in front. Now, how the hell could Oswald know that Bill Shelley was standing in front of the building as such? There's absolutely nothing that basically um, Oswald could have known. If he were the sixth floor shooter, he could not have known that Bill Shelley was standing out in front. Furthermore, Oswald stated that he was in the domino room. He basically says he said he was on the first floor. He saw two Negroes come in. One was junior and the other one was a short Negro. Who we assume that was Harold Norman. And he says what he had for lunch. He says cheese sandwiches and apple. So he saw Jarman because that was um, Junior's Junior. It was James Junior Jarman and Harold Norman who came into the domino room while he had his lunch. <coughs> Now, it gets better. Not only was Fritz interviewing Oswald, 
two FBI agents by the name of James Hostie and James Bookout did this. Now, Hostie and Bookout made a joint report on November the 23rd. And let me quote this. Oswald stated that he went to lunch at approximately noon and he claimed he ate his lunch on the first floor in the lunchroom, which is the domino room. However, he went to the second floor where the Coca-Cola machine was located and obtained a bottle of Coca-Cola for his lunch. Oswald claimed to be on the first floor when President John F. Kennedy passed by his building. So therefore, he basically said, I wasn't on the sixth floor, I was on the first floor. However, the next day, Hostie isn't around. Bookout is. And he issues another report on the 24th, which he wrote after Oswald was dead. <clears throat> so, Oswald stated that on November 22nd, 1963, at the time of the search of the Texas School Book Depository building by Dallas police officers, he was on the second floor of said building, having just purchased a Coca-Cola from the soft drink machine. Now, that's already a problem, but I'll get back to that. He was on the... At which time a police officer came into the room with pistol drawn and asked him if he worked there. Mr. Truly was present and verified that he was an employee and that the police officer thereafter left the room and continued through the building. Oswald stated that he took his coke down to the first floor and stood around and had lunch in the employee's room. He thereafter went outside and stood around five or ten minutes with foreman Bill Shelley. Right, there's a massive issue with this statement and it's also that evident that Bookout was in with the fix. <clears throat> First of all, he mentions officers. Well, Baker was the only officer, uh, only policeman in that building for a fair amount of time. Secondly, he says that Oswald purchased a Coke, which from a timing perspective makes it interesting because, like I said, with the Leo Sauvage bit, he'd had to throw in money, get his money out, put the money in, um, put it in the machine, wait for the bottle to appear, take the cap off, and so forth. And neither truly, no baker saw anything in his hands. So that's a serious problem. And then, but this is the biggest part, the biggest problem of this, of Bookout's statement. He says that Oswald stood around and had lunch after the shooting. Really? I thought Oswald left straight after, practically straight after the, the encounter with truly Baker and Reed later on. So how can he stand around for lunch? And for quite some time, he says he talked to Shelley for five to ten minutes after. That's another problem because Shelley denied this in his Warren Commission testimony. So how this is can be achieved? Because here's another problem. Because if he, if Oswald didn't go out in three minutes, right? And he was having his lunch and his coke after the shooting. And on top of that, talked to Shelley for five or ten minutes. How does he get the bus and the cab ride? And how does he pick up his so-called gun going to the Texas and then walking towards the Texas theater and killing Tippett on the way? How this is all being achieved in that very little time that is actually available? It doesn't add up. That's the problem. Hosey himself uh, was absent from hey, uh, further investigation, further interrogations. Get the fingernail clippers out of the bathroom and um, the back porch it's and cut possible your nails because he uh, and get in the shower. He talked too much. 
because um, in the uh, <clears throat> in the interrogations chapter, I'll get into the in more into depth. But basically, he was talking to Jack Revel around three three p.m. Oswald was brought in about half an hour, uh, forty five minutes before that, and basically um, claimed to Revel uh, two bits. Number one, that he um, it was a subversive that Oswald was a subversive, and then on top of that, it according to Jack Revel, that he was capable of assassinating the president. Hosty himself um, writes in his book, and this, of course, is uh, a bit speculative because, first of all, his notes that he found just before he released the book, which he said he had destroyed, but later on found between his papers, um, probably kept it as a souvenir. I think that's the same thing with Wilfrid, kept them also as a souvenir. There's nothing shady about it. Of course, he lied through his teeth that he didn't take any notes. Um, his notes, Hosey's notes come up, and um, he also writes in uh, the uh, in his book, Simon Oswald. <clears throat> Let me just quote here. Where were you when the president went by the book depository? I was eating my lunch in the first floor lunchroom. What time was that? About noon. Were you ever on the second floor around the time the president was shot? Well, yeah, I went up there to get a bottle of Coke from from the machine for my lunch. But where were you when the president actually passed your building on the first floor in the lunchroom and you left this depository? Isn't that right? Yeah. When did you leave? Well, I figured with all the confusion, there wouldn't be any more work to do that day. Secret Service is also present. Uh, Thomas J. Kelly and Forrest Wells. Forrest Wells state um, notes are Buried, actually, inside the Warren report. I think it was Larry Harpanen who found them. And it's actually the top half of a written uh, page. Writing the top half actually discusses um, the uh, purchase of the rifle, etc., etc. But there's nothing about this position and so forth. Like I said, I'm going to get more into depth about this. It's quite interesting uh, how everybody is covering their own rear for not taking any notes or recording anything as such. Um, and then there's Thomas J. Kelly. And Thomas J. Kelly is the only one who supplies an interrogation report that actually goes so far as to claim that Oswald explicitly admitted to not having watched the motorcade, which is weird because in his so-called first interview with Lee Harvey Oswald, he states, at this time, Captain Fritz showed a selective service card that was taken out of his wallet, wallet which bore the name of Alec Heidel. Oswald refused to discuss this, and after being asked for an explanation of it, both by Fritz and by James Bookout, the FBI agent, I asked him if he viewed the parade, and he said he had not. I then asked him if he had shot the president, and he said he had not. I asked him if he had shot Governor Connolly, and he said he had not. The The bit, I asked him if he viewed the parade, and he said he had not is not backed up by any notes or reports, not by Fritz, not by Hostie, not by Bookout, or even Harry Dean Holmes, who was actually present during that final interrogation of Oswald alongside Kelly. And which brings me to um, Harry Dean Holmes. And Harry Dean Holmes actually screwed things up badly, and that's because he relied too much on his memory. He was an old school guy, just like Will Fritz, and basically, if they designate you to be the murderer, that's it. You're done for. Now, again, I'll talk about this more in the second article. 
Um, Holmes wrote a statement December the 17th of 1963. So that's um, what we're talking about. Three and a half weeks, almost four, almost four weeks after the uh, assassination. <clears throat> the commotion surrounding the assassination took place and he went downstairs. A policeman questioned him as to his identification and his boss stated, he's one of our employees, whereupon the policeman had him step aside momentarily. You see, that aside bit, that just doesn't make any sense if it were in the uh, second floor lunchroom. There's no point. Now, in his testimony for the Warren Commission, he says the same thing. Well, let me just go through um, Holmes's Warren Commission testimony for a little bit. Mr. Bellin, by the way, where did this policeman stop him when he was coming down the stairs at the book depository on the day of the shooting? He said it was in the vestibule. He said it was in the vestibule or approaching the door to the vestibule. He was just coming, apparently, and I've never been in there myself. Apparently, there's two sets of doors and he had to come out to his front part. Did he state it was on what floor? First floor, the front entrance to the first floor. So here, Holmes is actually confirming during his Warren Commission testimony that Oswald was confronted by Baker on the first floor. Because even though they're trying to make it sound that the vestibule is on the second floor in different testimonies, the second floor lunchroom, nor the door leading to the lunchroom, isn't a set of doors. It's plural. That's what they said. Two sets of doors. Whereas the front door, which is a glass door, is actually two doors. And the doors that lead to the shipping department are also two doors. So here, Holmes has given the game away. Oswald was confronted on the first floor of the Texas School Book Depository. Now then, later on, during the very same testimony, <clears throat> excuse me, Mr. Bellin. Now, Mr. Holmes, I wonder if you could try and think if there's anything else that you remember Oswald saying about where he was during the period prior or shortly prior to, and then at the time of the assassination. Nothing more than I've already said, if you want me to repeat that. Go ahead and repeat it. See if I say it the same way. Yes. He said that when lunchtime came, he was working in one of the upper floors with a Negro. The Negro said, come on, let's eat lunch together. Apparently both having them a sack of lunch. And he said, you go ahead, send the elevator back up and I will come down just as soon as I'm finished. And he didn't say what he was doing. There was a commotion outside, which he later rushed downstairs to go out and see what was going on. He didn't say whether he took the stairs down. He didn't say whether he took the elevator down. But he went downstairs, and as he went out the front, it seems as though he did have a Coke with him. So Oswald has got a Coke in his hands when he's going out the front door, according to Holmes. Or he stopped at the Coke machine. Well, which is it, Harry? Because according to your infallible memory, you know, this is like a massive difference. But again, or somebody else was trying to get a Coke again. But there was a Coke involved. He mentioned something about a Coke. But a police officer asked him who he was. And just as he started to identify himself, his superintendent came up and said, he's one of our men. And the policeman said, well, you step aside for a little bit. Then I just went out on out in the crowd to see what it was all about. Again, step aside. You know, this it's a very significant word. You don't you don't really come up with that. Um, and it has absolutely no bearing with the second floor lunchroom encounter whatsoever. 
Oswald didn't lie when he claimed he was on the first floor when the president passed by the Texas School Book Depository. It's as simple as that. Even that bit actually should exonerate him already. And this is the same with the stairs when they start talking about Oswald coming down the stairs because you've in the JFK, the movie, you actually have the bit where they use the uh, second floor lunchroom encounter in conjunction with the descent of Sandra Stiles and Victoria Adams. Now, you read um, The Girl on the Stairs, and it's just fantastic, you know, these these two ladies um, with the story, and even decades after, they're just consistent. They don't miss about, they know what they, they know what they experienced, they know what they said, what they said back then, but they also found out that Victoria Adams' statement was altered to basically mess with the timing. And I'll get back to this in the third chapter. Um, Love Lady and Shelley lie through their teeth when they basically state that they saw Victoria Adams downstairs in the first floor shipping room, the shipping area coming down. Whereas the lady said they saw a tall black man. That was the only one they actually encountered to. And that even gets backed up by, with the Martha J. Stroud document. The Martha J. Stroud document was found by Barry Ernest, if I'm not mistaken, in 1999. And, Mar- and uh, Martha J. Stroud document is about Dorothy Garner. And Dorothy Garner was a supervisor of Adams and Stiles. And she was an incredibly precise person. I think she was described by Victoria Adams as somebody that uh, goes uh, like uh, as a librarian. It's quite uh, strict and uh, didn't suffer fools gladly. Um, she actually uh, did an interview, and this interview is nowhere to be seen. I don't know why. Because in the Martha J. Stroud document, it actually states that she saw Truly and the policeman come up after the ladies had gone down. It's as simple as that. And that is, is another nail into the coffin of actually from a timing perspective and the fact that basically the ladies didn't see anyone. Then there's Otis Williams. Otis Williams went up those steps as well. Otis Williams left immediately because we know this because he's been identified in Algin 6 with his pot belly standing out and there's a picture of him in Larry Sneed's book as well you you just pick him out right there and then he's uh, the guy in the white shirt holding his right hand up and he's wearing glasses but he can't be seen in the Darnell film his position is vacant it's gone and as per statement he went up to the fourth floor via the back stairs to get a better view of the railroad yards. And this is the thing. Um, Possibly Dorothy Garner made a mention of this in her statement. But of course, the statement is nowhere to be found. It has been deleted. Um, Just an additional mention is that we uh, were chasing Roy Truly's deleted boring condition testimony. It's another curious thing. Why would you delete testimony? And also, if it doesn't have any bearing on anything, why not just publish it as such? So, of course, there's something of uh, a screw-up of gigantic proportions in that uh, testimony, because otherwise, why would they hide it or delete it? Um, It is on the Dictabelt recording. It is at NARA. I was... uh, Know that uh, I was brought, this was brought up by uh, Dennis Morissette, and uh, we at ROKC have basically been trying to hunt this Dictabelt recording down. We did this, uh, we've been trying to get this all summer. And the fact is, is that um, they have a uh, they have uh, certain contractors assigned who do certain bits for them, like scanning of documents and or pictures that are of larger size than 35 mil, for instance, you know, 
and also Dictabelt recording because the Nara itself doesn't have the uh, the equipment to do so. So they have preferred contractors that you basically, you know, you say, like, I want a copy of this. Yeah, you can. We'll have to send it over there. You have to pay for it, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. So after 10 weeks, finally, I had enough of waiting, and uh, our guy basically uh, emailed them and found out that basically, although it's all open in full, the actual recording needs to be um, copied by another intermediate, and then they have to get a transcription of it. And then um, they have to see whether it can act, they can actually release it in full as such. So even after 53 years, they're still messing about when it comes to releasing uh, documents as such or a recording. But the fact that it's already deleted testimony, you know, why would you delete testimony? It's just, it just boggles the mind. Okay, so um, then there's, of course, um, the reenactments the reenactments again the press and the photographers that were around uh didn't see anyone do any reenactments whatsoever um on november the 25th um time life did it not it's not considered a legal recreation secret service went in on december the 2nd to the 4th uh, fbi did it on this february the 7th 64 and from may the 20th to the 25th the warren commission carried out for them by the fbi um you know this bit has been uh, discussed a lot by weisberg and by jill jesus and uh, quite a few others and it's not something i i really went uh, deep into um a really good indicator of uh, how much BS is actually is, is the fact that uh, if you look at the uh, JFK, uh, the um, the recreation uh, created by the uh, Secret Service, there's video of it. And in the end, Oswald ends up sitting down at a table having lunch, really. Um, also, the uh, the walk itself, it is so slow. I think that if I uh, go on my knees down on all fours, I'd probably do it quicker. It's that slow. And also on top of that, the uh, filming, uh, the descent on the stairs from the second, sixth to the second floor is absent as well. It just cut, it's just cut straight to, from sixth to second. So that's uh, a huge problem. Of course, uh, the, uh, the fact that uh, Sandra Stiles and uh, Victoria Adams and uh, Jack Doherty who came down the lift, and Otis Williams and Dorothy Garney, that, were, that they were not involved in any of the uh, recreations or re reenactments. Just downright criminal. Because those stairs were very, very busy. Um, and that basically leaves me with the conclusions to close it all off. First of all, the second floor lunchroom encounter did not happen. You know, the physical side of the actual encounter is severely in doubt due to the complications such as the closed door, Oswald's position, Baker's view through the window, the distance between Baker and Truly. There's too many inconsistencies in uh, Baker's and uh, tr Truly's statements. And also there's detail being developed as we go along. The uh, statements of uh, September the 23rd from Baker and Truly, of course, are questionable. 
why would they have to, why would they need all these uh, statements? Baker's first statement about an encounter in an open area on the third or the fourth floor. Never, ever got to mention ever again. Um, Oswald was encountered by Baker near the front door, of course, inside the vestibule, while Baker was securing the front entrance because Oswald wanted to leave or when he'd just gone in. Victoria Adams' testimony, of course, and the follow-up statements. Reed and Sanders were used as backup for Truly. Without Geneva Hine, they probably would have had a home run. You know, they would have gotten away with it. And um, it's obvious that Fritz and the FBI special agent Bookout, they fixed their reports and uh, tried to destroy Oswald's alibi. Um, I want to go to uh, Marvin Johnson a little bit. Uh, he wrongly claimed in his statement that Baker had identified Oswald in the lineup. And Baker contradicted this. Johnson stated in his report that Baker started to search the man, indicating physical contact. Where this comes from is beyond me. And of course, he refers to the fourth floor encounter as per Baker's first statement. And he asserted in this report that Baker pointed at Oswald while he took Baker's affidavit. And there's no evidence whatsoever written or typed up that points to that. Um, then, of course, you've got Ocus Campbell, the vice president. He was not called up by the Warren Commission, which is quite a strange thing as well. It's peculiar, to say the least. And he saw more than he actually wanted to admit on paper. Con contradicted himself as well, but I'll get into more of that. Um, Sanders. He's the only person that remembers Baker running up the steps without mentioning truly. Uh, hearsay conversation with Reed is recorded and treated like gospel. And as one of truly secretaries, he was used as backup to confirm Reed's truly story. Reed, Mrs. Robert Reed, lied. Lied on the oath. Um, he twisted away a conversation she had with Ocus Campbell. Stated that Oswald wore a white T-shirt and had a coke in his right hand. Did not notice Geneva Hine, nor Sarah Stanton. And Geneva Hine, of course, did not see Reed until she came in as part of a group, which is about half a dozen people. And she didn't observe Oswald either. And this is really important because she actually stated, A, that she was alone in that office between 12.25 and 12.35, and that she saw Oswald every day yet not that day. And Sarah Stanton, of course, who uh, plays a dubious role for the fact that she said she went back in straight away as well afterwards. So even so, if she'd gone back straight in, which she didn't, she would have had to run into Geneva Hine or Mrs. Robert Reed. And again, Stanton is noticed by Hine as part of a group that includes Reed, Campbell, Molina, etc. And that's pretty much it, you know. Um, the main thing is is that that this whole second floor lunchroom encounter has basically been concocted in addition to ascertain Oswald's guilt. Because the problem is that Oswald could not be put into the sixth floor window. This is the problem. Jesse Curry said it himself in an interview. We have nothing that actually points to that Oswald is in the sixth floor window shooting at Kennedy. So they had to come up with that 
second floor lounge room encounter. Yeah, because I mean, if he was found to be on the first floor, that would be an even bigger problem getting him to the sixth floor. You know, exactly. If they encountered and then him people, immediately after the people shot. People would have seen him. You see, yeah. the thing is, is that they had to isolate Oswald because he wasn't isolated when he was on the first floor. There were several employees there. Now, I'm going to talk about this a lot in the third chapter about the Texas School Book Depository employees. But the basic thing is, is that people were either coerced or they were just lying. You know, um, Charles Douglas Givens is one of the first guys who basically was yapping out of his out of his rear because he started talking about picking up cigarettes and seeing Oswald on the sixth floor. And basically because um, Givens had a narcotics charge. Well, let me up that a little bit. Billy Lovelady had a weapons charge. Lovelady got nicked for stealing pistols while he was in the Navy. And he didn't pay his fine off. So he was rearrested in, it was a $200 fine and he was rearrested in Dallas. And basically, Ocus Campbell, the vice president of the Texas School Book Depository, paid the remainder of the fine, which I think was $125. Bill Shelley, and this is a document we found out about uh, four or five months ago as well at NARA, had one in had a weapons charge in 1960 and he has another set of codes that relate to charges from 1969 i still have to call dallas and find out what these codes stand for be very interested um in in a nutshell a lot of people inside the texas school book depository lied but you know what let's put it into a uh, uh, really simple uh, way is let's put it in a present day situation for instance if you're working in an office and you've got an employee that's been around for about four to six weeks and keeps to himself quite a lot doesn't talk a lot doesn't make friends and um Say there's a motorcade going past with some a bunch of dignitaries in it, and somebody shoots. And when you find out that this person has been a subversive, and um, say has been in an ISIS training camp for uh, three years, or lived in Syria for three years, and he's been in, uh, he doesn't even have to be in a training camp. The fact that he was in Syria for three years voluntarily, just leaving your own country and basically go voluntarily to, well, you know now what's happening with these people when they come back. You know they all they get thrown in the slammer, being used as informants, or they are. Um, or they are um, basically monitored for, for God knows how long. So that's a present day uh, scenario. So and this guy is a communist and he's working in the South. Now, once that comes out that this person has been um, a subversive and a Marxist or a communist, and you know, in a conservative state like um, like Texas, for instance, everybody will turn their back on him. It's simple as that. The guy was marked from the second uh, book out, walked into the garage of the uh, Dallas police station and uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon and basically said that Oswald had been in Russia. That was that. I'll tell you what, something else. Truly was thoroughly impressed 
with Oswald because he said to, Os- to Otis Williams, he said, I wish I had five Oswalds. Yeah, because Oswald didn't make mistakes with his work at all. And the second truly found out that Oswald was a commie, right? That was that. He threw him under a bus. Yeah. And that's when the story got concocted. When you read the first statements of Baker, of Shelley, of Love Lady, all that, they just write in generic terms what they saw, this, that, and the other. That's when the second statement start coming out. It gets mega specific all of a sudden about how quiet he was and he wasn't talking much and he kept to himself and he was a loner and this, that, and the other. And also at the same time, nobody admits seeing him. You know, it's like um, there's a lot of discrepancies um, who actually saw Oswald around 12 o'clock. You know, Shelley saw him at 10 to 12. Somebody saw him at 12 o'clock. You know, um, Carolyn Arnold says that she saw him at first. She saw him at 12.25. She thought she saw a glimpse of him behind the glass door on the on the steps and then retracted that 15 years later during the HSCA, uh, when the HSCA hearings were going on. She did three interviews for um, Earl Golds and she did one for Anthony Summers and she also did one for the National Enquirer. And if there's any listeners who can dig out that interview for me, I'd be well indebted to you because it's very hard to get hold of for some reason. I saw a very low res copy of this article on the National Enquirer, and I haven't found it yet. So I really would like to get a good copy of that. Wow. Well, I mean, it definitely, definitely makes you rethink the events of that day. For sure, and and you know, gets you to question the official version of events when you oh big time because there's too much you see like the fact that when people say well why is it a conspiracy I always say because there's too much wrong with it and some of it is utter rubbish but overall there's too much wrong with it overall the autopsy there's too much wrong with it the the, the casket there's things wrong with that uh, Parkland versus Bethesda there's something wrong with that. The bullets, there are things wrong with that. Yeah. Um, the brain, there's something wrong with that too. Um, the tip of murder, there are several things wrong with that. Um, and inside what, what happened inside the Texas School Book Depository, there's lots wrong with that. These people lie through their teeth. And the fact is also, don't forget, Oswald was killed on the 24th in the morning. So... After that, it doesn't matter. The guy's dead. He's already been publicly condemned by the feds and so forth. It doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah, and everybody just, wants to distance themselves from, you know, yeah. knowing him. Yeah. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Well. So I'd, I'd just like to add one more thing. Sure. The article itself is on the web, and uh, the word count has basically crashed my software. I can't really edit the actual article anymore. There's going to be a PDF. Um, uh, it should be coming out this week. So um, I'll, pa- I'll give you the link. Um, I'm going through a final edit, and then the PDF can be downloaded from my website or the DD Plaza UK website. And uh, it makes it a little bit more pleasant reading because of the um, narrowness of the actual column where the text is uh, visible in, on the web page. 
Um, so I recommend that if you haven't read the article yet, that you grab the PDF and start with that because also it will be the, be the most recent version as such. Right, and that's going to be prayer-man.com and dealyplazauk.com. No, it's Dealey Plaza. Let me just check that really quick. It's dealyplazauk.org.uk. .uk. Gotcha. So dealyplazauk.org.uk. All right, I'll put links to all this stuff up over at tlgpodcast.com uh, as well so people can easily find some of this stuff. And uh, is there anything else you wanted to plug away at, Bart? Um, the RKC yeah, forum? And yeah, if yes. Well, the RKC forum has uh, changed its uh, its house. We uh, moved away from the West forum. And it's now reopenkennedycase.forumnotion.net slash forum. Uh, again, I will send you the link for that as well. Okay. Uh, you can just paste that in. Um, we're all, uh, well, we've had all busy summers, so uh, we ended up posting the most important threads of uh, the webs forum back at the old forum. We gave it a new skin, and uh, we're probably getting active again in a few weeks' time when we got stuff to show. Um, like I said, I work on the uh, interrogations article, that should be out probably around the anniversary. And then uh, I don't know how long it's going to take uh, to do the third article because uh, I'm actually not looking forward to doing that because it's probably going to be bigger than this anatomy one. And that one took me about 10 weeks to make. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we're talking about uh, 15 to 20 people uh, that are born, going to be talked about in depth. And um, then, of course, the presentations, the movies. Um, I've, I've abstained a bit from doing it because I was supposed to do the movie first before I started writing the second article. Instead, I went against that, exactly the opposite way. And I've, I'm probably going to make a start at some point um, over the next few weeks. Um, I've got, I have to redo all the graphics and so forth. So uh, that's quite time consuming and basically put the story together uh, so we can get a nice, you know, a movie of about an hour. Now here we are talking for almost two hours already, uh, just talking about this. So, um, you know, I have to half that. So that's going to be quite a, quite a tough job to accomplish. Right. Narrow it down as such. But uh, they will come out. I, I will definitely have one out this year. And hopefully, maybe the second one uh, before Christmas. So that'd be good. And the uh, and the first premiere movie is is out. It's on your website and and on YouTube as yeah. well. Yeah, it's on the everybody can check it out. I want to thank everyone for watching it. I managed to nab uh, fifty six thousand hits so far viewings, um, uh, of which six thousand in the last five weeks. So uh, yeah, I'm really chuffed uh, by the uh, interest in it. Um, it was it is a bit long, but uh, my girlfriend did it in two 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 bits, and uh, that worked. Uh, as she said, that worked out okay. She had to pause it halfway through, and that also got me thinking. And the fact that one of my uh, old army buddies actually said to me, "Goes, I'm amazed by the amount of detail, but it's like being a teacher, uh, being put in front of a class." 
uh, with all brand new students, and where um, you basically have to memorize all these names uh, in mm -hmm. the first in that first hour. So you know, say yes, that's a very uh, uh, valid criticism. So um, that that needs to be worked on. And therefore, I also thought, well, I'm going to split it up in that in conjunction with the amount of extra material that I found on this encounter, for instance, the interrogations as well and so forth. That basically made me decide that I have to split this in four parts. So, yeah, I mean, you're pretty much finding out new information every week at this point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Little bits. bits of that, but yeah. It's only basically going through the... Uh, through uh, the documents. I mean, I've stopped reading books for now. I've just been going through all the documentation and this what takes up uh, all my time, all my free uh, time is basically spent on reading documents and trying to find bits. And uh, yeah, every week I find a little nugget that I can say, oh yeah, I can add that on. And that is bearing on the case and, you know. Yeah, I like, like uh, my friend David Josephs likes to say, the evidence is the conspiracy. You know, when yeah. you actually dig, start digging into what they have given us, you know, and putting it together in the proper manner. Yeah, yeah. and this is the thing, what I just don't understand from the mainstream media, why they actually um, dig into it. That's, you know, it just shows the, the vacuousness of uh, the whole uh, mainstream media of, well, not everyone, but a large segment of it that I'm just not spending the time on actually just actually reading. And even so, I, if I give them a hundred pages, you know, if I just mark them out, that would just already confirm that uh, these people were lying through their teeth and basically swinging the story in whichever way they wanted to. So, No, for sure. So that's why the articles in trying to uh, compress it and basically put it forward. And like in the article, everything is linked. So whatever statement I make about these things, it's linked to the actual statement. I'm just repeating it. My own, uh, my own bits are very little. It's just that the picture just starts to emerge by when you start reading all these um, documents and uh, interviews on video and so forth. Um, that the certain picture starts to emerge about like how foobar this whole thing actually is. Yeah. And yeah, but how. You know, when I start talking to people in the pub about this, then they just can't comprehend it because, um, like, uh, you know, when they watch the odd documentary here and there where they try to squeeze the case into 60 minutes or a 90 minutes of a movie, then <clears throat> when I just tell them how much, how much, uh, how much time I spend on this and, and just only about, we're talking about a policeman who runs up the steps with, the superintendent, and then does an encounter. Right. You know? I know, it's crazy. Yeah. It's just, they can't just comprehend that. And I'm like, well, that's why, because there's so much detail. And yeah, David Joseph is right. The evidence is the conspiracy. And uh, that, that's the beauty of it. And the thing is, like, there's loads of it around. But it, I don't know, it takes people... Well, like you, to put it to put it together in a cohesive manner. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, Greg Parker and uh, many others at ROKC based this. Uh, uh, Hassan Yusuf, same thing. They just spent time just trawling through all these documents at Mary Farrell and uh, the new guy, uh, that one archive. What's his name? Michael West? Michael Best. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, he, uh, he does phenomenal work. I'm absolutely uh, stunned by uh, what he dumps yeah. on the internet. There's an Oswald file that is almost 40,000 pages thick. 
Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely amazing. And there's FBI files about the case as well, 20 or 30,000 of it. And not just the JFK case. He talks, he has Watergate files, Iran Contra, and God knows what on there. And uh, it's like a Valhalla when it comes to uh, files. And all he does is do uh, freedom of information uh, requests. And uh, yeah, he seems to get it all. It's great. I'm very, very thankful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Doing what he does. It's amazing. It is. And uh, what you did was amazing. And, and I thank you very much, Bart, for coming on the show and, and breaking it down for everybody. And Thanks. hey, no problem. Yeah, it's great to have you again for the third time. And uh, we'll definitely do it again. And uh, in the meantime, everybody, head over to TLGpodcast.com. I'll put up all the relative links to send you to all the right places for everything that we talked about here on the show today. That's it for today. The sun bitches in the can, beam up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace. right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. 
and update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.